0: The Corum Deo Church community is a missional church rooted in historic, biblical Christianity and committed to cultural engagement. We hope the message you are about to hear spurs you to deeper reflection on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thanks for listening. This morning's scripture reading is Psalm 31. In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. I hate those who pay regard to worthless idols, but I trust in the Lord. I will rejoice and be glad in your steadfast love because you have seen my affliction. You have known the distress of my soul, and you have not delivered me into the hand of the enemy. You have set my feet in a broad place. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. My eye is wasted from grief, my soul, and my body also. For my life is spent with sorrow and my years with sighing. My strength fails because of my iniquity and my bones waste away. Because of all my adversaries, I have become a reproach, especially to my neighbors and an object of dread to my acquaintances. Those who see me in the street flee from me. I have been forgotten like one who is dead. I've become like a broken vessel for I hear the whispering of many terror on every side as they scheme together against me, as they plot to take my life. But I trust in you, O Lord. I say you are my God. My times are in your hand. Rescue me from the hand of my enemies and from my persecutors. Make your face shine on your servant Save me in your steadfast love. O Lord, let me not be put to shame, for I call upon you. Let the wicked be put to shame. Let them go silently to Sheol. Let the lying lips be mute, which speak insolently against the righteous in pride and contempt. O how abundant is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you, and worked for those who take refuge in you in the sight of the children of mankind. In the cover of your presence, you hide them. From the plots of men, you store them in your shelter from the strife of tongues. Blessed be the Lord, for he has wondrously shown his steadfast love to me. When I was in a besieged city, I had said in my alarm, I am cut off from your sight, but you heard the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cried to you for help. Love the Lord, all you his saints. The Lord preserves the faithful, but abundantly repays the one who acts in pride. Be strong and let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. The word of God for the people of God.
1: Good morning, church. It's good to see you. Uh, My name is Kevin, and it's uh, my privilege to serve as one of the eight, the team of eight elders that shepherds uh, this church. As it is also my privilege to open God's Word with you uh, this morning. In his classic book on spiritual formation, uh, Dallas Willard makes a profound observation about feelings in the modern world. Listen to what he has to say. In the modern condition, feeling will come to exercise almost total mastery over the individual. This is because people in that condition will have to constantly decide what they want to do, and feeling will be all they have to go on here lies the secrets to understanding contemporary western life and its peculiar proneness to gross immoralities and addictions people are overwhelmed with decisions and can only make those decisions on the basis of feelings I wonder if that resonates with you. I wonder if you feel that pull to order your life, to make daily decisions and even larger ones in light of how you're feeling at a particular moment. Or perhaps you observe this in the lives and decision-making of uh, people who are close to you, family, friends, roommates. And what Willard is pointing us to is that in previous generations, established traditions and rituals and roles gave people a sense of what was good to do without having To appeal to their feelings. In a situation such as the one we live in today, by contrast, where people constantly um, have or at least think that they have to decide what to do, it often seems and feels like the easiest and the simplest way to go forward is to just make those decisions on the basis of our feelings. In fact, we're told uh, today that how you feel ought to determine your obligations, what you are obliged to do. It should determine the roles that you take, and even what other people are obliged to give to you. We are, we are, we are. The, the messages that are out there is that your feelings even determine your uh, identity. Feelings are king, it seems. Now, this causes Christians to fall into two errors. Like the world around us, we may give feelings too much authority, and to, uh, to determine who we are and what we do in life, okay. or as a reaction to the emotionalism of our time, we may double down on right beliefs and fail to appreciate emotion as an integral part of what it means to be a human being. God wants to set us free from both of these errors because spiritually mature Christians learn to express their emotions honestly and openly, but they're not led by them. You hear that? Spiritually mature Christians learn to express the full gamut of human emotion because that's part of what it means to be a human being. But in the end, mature Christians are not led by those feelings. And fortunately, we have some ancient wisdom in the Psalms to help us chart those waters. Psalm 31 is particularly helpful because we find David, the writer of the Psalm, trying to hang on to what he knew to be true, despite the fact that his feelings were making that difficult. And we can see this in the first couple of verses of the Psalm. Look at uh, verses two and three. David says, incline your ear to me, God. Rescue me speedily. Be a rock of refuge for me, a strong fortress to save me. For you are my rock and my fortress. Now that's an odd progression of thought. Look at it again. That, there's something odd about that. God, He says, God, be a refuge for me because you are a refuge. So if God is his refuge, why is he asking God, be my refuge? What does that suggest about where David's at when he's writing this? Well, I think what it means is that he's trying to reconcile his current circumstances of feeling exposed and vulnerable and attacked with his belief that God had promised to be his protector, his refuge, his strength. He's trying to reconcile feelings on one hand and his knowledge and beliefs on the other. And because that's the moment he's at as he writes this, and because this is God's inspired word, there's something for us to learn here about how to navigate between feelings and our, our, and our beliefs. In other words, this psalm teaches us how to walk forward in faith when our feelings seem to contradict our beliefs. Perhaps one of the following statements um, hits home for you. Maybe you believe God's promise that those who fear the Lord will never be put to shame. But what you feel is shame on a daily basis. Perhaps you believe that God is sovereignly reigning over all of the earth, all the nations and over history. And yet what you feel is an unhealthy anguish in fear about culture and politics. Maybe you believe that God is capable of turning suffering and evil into good. You know, that's true but all that you feel is pain. You believe God is approachable, but what you feel is undesirable and unwelcome. You believe that God is merciful, and but you can't move past that feeling of regrets over something that you did or said in your past. Maybe you believe that God is a faithful provider, but what you, con- what you feel is constant dread that the money is going to run out at some point. Perhaps you believe that the God of peace, as he has promised, will guard your heart and your mind. But what you feel is anxiety all the time. Maybe you know that relationship that you're pursuing is not good for your soul, but it makes you happy. You know, finally, perhaps, perhaps you know that you are involved in a cosmic battle, battle between good and evil. You are right in the center of that battle. But what you feel is insignificance, and boredom. Well, this tension between what we know to be true and what we're feeling is a normal part of the Christian life. It's just part of what it means to walk with God. But it certainly can be discouraging and disheartening and disorienting. And in this psalm, David models some things for us. He models three practical steps for keeping our faith in such situations. So here they are, okay? David complains honestly. Secondly, he rehearses the truth, and then finally, he surrenders everything into God's hands. So we'll walk through those three points and see how David models those in this psalm. So first of all, David complains very honestly. Like many moments in David's life, others, it appears, are scheming against him to take his life. Verse 4 says, take me out of the net that they've hidden for me. And it seems that those schemes are likely involving some kind of public slander. For in verse one, he says, let me never be put to shame. And he seems throughout the song to be preoccupied with not putting him to shame, letting others his enemies be shamed, some sort of public shame or, and there's even plots to kill him. And David's primary request is the, is, uh, is very clear in these opening verses. It's simply this, God be my rock of refuge, be my fortress of protection. And again, he's asking this because he feels vulnerable. Skip down a bit in the Psalm to verse 9 and notice the emotional language that David uses in this extended complaint. Verses 9 through 13. He says, Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. My eye is wasted from grief, and my soul and my body also. For my life is spent with sorrow and my years with sighing. My strength fails because of my iniquity and my bones waste away. Because of all my adversaries, I have become a reproach, especially to my neighbors and an object of dread to my acquaintances. Those who see me in the street, they flee from me. I have been forgotten like one who's dead, I become like a broken vessel for I hear the whispering of many. I feel terror on every side as they scheme together against me, as they plot to take my life. Now, this long complaint, uh, if we're frank, sounds a bit like an overly dramatic teenager in some ways. No offense to the overly dramatic teenagers um, in the room. Uh, But listen, this is in the Bible, this is, and it's not just in the Bible. This is in the part of the Bible that is intended to teach you how to pray. And so that means that God wants you to know that he can handle your emotional rants. He can handle your complaints. You don't need to obscure them or or or, or, or uh, make them sound better. David is modeling being super honest. He complains very honestly with God about his emotional state. He doesn't try to touch up his prayers to make it sound a little less weak, a little less sinful, um, he, he, he puts it out there, plain. God can handle that. Look again at verse 12. He says, I have been forgotten like one who is dead. I have become like a broken vessel. Now, friends, factually, that is simply not true. There's, we have reason to suspect that David was probably still king when he wrote this, and he still had many people on his side, and God, to be sure. It's factually untrue what he's saying here, but, He feels insignificant, having no more worth than a cracked pot that can no longer hold water. And frankly, he sounds depressed, does he not? And he tells the Lord as much. So friends, the Bible paints a very high view of human emotion. They drip, not just from Psalm 31, but from the entire set of Psalms. Or think forward into the life and ministry of Jesus. He walks into a wake of his friend Lazarus, whose sister is crying. And what does he do? he weeps. He weeps. Jesus, God incarnate, wept with Mary. Or or consider um, another great insight from another psalm, Psalm 56, verse 8. It says, you have kept count of my tossings, put my tears in your bottle. So friends, God doesn't overlook the fact that your anxiety kept you tossing in bed last night, much less is he angry about you for feeling that. Uh, because I cherish my kids, I collect the art that they make, even the ones that aren't very good, right? Did you notice what God collects? He collects your tears in a bottle. Does that sound like the kind of God who doesn't care to hear your complaints? Absolutely not. He absolutely wants to hear your unfettered, unpolished complaints, whatever it is that you're feeling. He can handle that. David shows us that he can handle that, and he delights in some ways to hear you express those emotions to him. Perhaps um, a parent or some other authority has, has maybe chastised you in the past for expressing feelings in a certain way. Or maybe there's some other reason that you have come to uh, tell yourself that Christians ought not to feel those things. And so what you've learned is to suppress those feelings. Friends, if that if that describes you, uh, you need to learn from David. You need to learn that you can and should express those emotions openly in prayer and to other people. And let me suggest just a small practical piece of advice for you. If you have trouble expressing those emotions, honestly, consider adding to your daily life the spiritual discipline of journaling and make it a point to daily write out and express to God what you were feeling that day, because the Bible and God have a very high view of emotions. We're not meant to bury them. But contrary to modern cultural values, our feelings do not get the last word. We subject them to the truth, which leads us to the second point, that David frequently in this psalm rehearses the truth. Now, there are many ways of, of doing this, perhaps dwelling on the character of God, meditating on scripture. David's primary strategy in this psalm, though, is to dwell on past encounters with God. Let's look at two instances of this. First of all, in verses five through eight. He says, into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. I hate those who pay regard to worthless idols, but I trust in the Lord. I will rejoice and be glad in your steadfast love, because you have seen my affliction. You have known the distress of my soul, and you have not delivered me into the hand of the enemy. You have set my feet in a broad place. What's happening here? What's he... What's he on about? It seems clear that he's remembering past experiences. He's rehearsing the past in his mind. It's as if he's saying, I've been here many times before. This is not surprising. I've been here at the point of affliction, of of distress, uh, people trying to kill me, plots against my life, public slander. I've been here before. And God, you were my rock of refuge then. Therefore, Therefore, I am confident that you will be faithful again. Second example, right after the emotional complaint that we heard a moment ago, David returns back to this kind of reminding himself of past experiences. Look at the end of the Psalm, verse 21 and 22, towards the end, David says there, blessed be the Lord, for he has wondrously shown his steadfast love to me when I was in a besieged city. I had said in my alarm, I am cut off from your sight. But you heard the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cried to you for help. Why that particular remembrance? There's a lot that David could have drawn on to say God was his protector, his refuge. Why that particular remembrance? I think it's because a besieged city is the military opposite of a refuge or a fortress. You see that? Rather than being impregnable and giving its possessor immense tactical advantages, a besieged city is surrounded. It's it's cut off. There is absolutely no tactical advantage to being besieged whatsoever. And so by recalling this, David is rehearsing the truth that the children of the promise are never cut off from God's strong arm. Never. If God can can turn a besieged city into a place of refuge which he apparently did, then what situation could possibly be beyond his protecting hands? And that is true. David's reminding himself that is true, no matter how he happened to be feeling at any particular moment. So to summarize what we know so far, David's senses are telling him the hand of the enemy is about to take hold of him. That's what he feels. And so he complains to God honestly about that situation and those feelings and then secondly, he orients himself towards the truth by reminding himself of past experiences of God's faithfulness. And then finally, this allows him to do, third, to, um, to surrender everything into God's hands. So between the complaints and the recollections and the pleas for God's protection, um, in this psalm are several profound statements of trust. Maybe you notice them as joy Read through the psalm. Let's look at two verses: five, verse five and verse fifteen. David says, "Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God." Verse fifteen: "My times are in your hand. Rescue me from the hand of my enemies and from my persecutors." Allow me to offer four very brief observations about these two uh, profound statements. First, uh, David is making a decision, okay? He says, into your hands, I commit my spirit. Surrendering is not passive. It's not giving up. It's, it's an active choice. In other words, surrender involves activation of the will, okay? Second observation, David's, David's surrender flows not from his feelings, but from the truth. Okay. It flows from his past experiences of deliverance because in verse five, he says, you have redeemed me. And it flows from his understanding and belief about the character of God. Oh, God, oh Lord, faithful God. His statement, I, I submit, or I, uh, I, uh, uh, I, I, into your hands, I commit my spirit is based on his knowledge of the truth, not his immediate feelings. Now friends, somewhere along the way, Somewhere along the way we have picked up the idea that blind faith is in some way better than well-reasoned faith and that somehow it pleases God more if we trust him without reason and that's simply not true he has given us a plethora enormous amounts of reasons why we should believe that he exists and why we should f- uh, faithfully uh, trust him and obey him he's given you reasons you don't uh, to trust him so um, uh, it pleases him when we strengthen our faith, whenever we strengthen our obedience by appealing to actual evidence that he can be trusted. Third, what is David surrendering? What's he surrendering? His spirit and his times. He says the plural times implies surrender in all the variety of seasons that God has planned for him in this life. Both seasons of distress in seasons of relative peace and happiness. The word spirit refers to the animating force of life that God breathes into every human being. And so to surrender our spirit is to say, God, I trust your will for me in life and in death. So the point is, is, David's surrender is a complete surrender. The fourth and most important observation to what is David surrendering? What's he surrendering to? To God's hands. The hands of God is the image he chooses, and it is the most, the perfect and beautiful image of both strength and tenderness. Strength, because the Israelites viewed God's outstretched hand as what created and laid the foundations of the world. Isaiah forty-eight thirteen. It was his hand that parted the Red Sea. Psalm 136, 12 and 13. It's God's right hand that defends the helpless. Psalm 10, verse 12. And it's his hand that shatters his enemies. Exodus chapter 15, verse 6. But God's hands are not merely strong. Consider, consider the image. Consider how intimate and tender and fatherly It is for God to put his hands around us. When others uh, keep you at arm's length, God holds you in his hand to draw you close. That's tenderness. That's fatherly affection. So Christian friend, this is what we should be shooting for. Is it not like... This are our, our willing surrender of every season of life and even life itself to the strong but gentle and faithful hands of God. This is what we're orient, what we should be oriented towards is this kind of willful surrender. Okay, so maybe, but back to the orienting question of our, of, of, uh, the, the, that I put before us. how, how do we walk forward in faith when our feelings seem to contradict our belief? What we're seeing here is that you complain honestly. You rehearse the truth, and then you surrender everything into God's hand. And I want to make some further observations about this and application, okay? So um, here then we have, with those three things, we have three core features of human nature. Do you see them? We have emotions, feeling, we have the mind, and the will. And I want you to see that walking with God in faith involves all three of those. Consider an an analogy that might help us orient those three elements, okay? So consider, think about like sailing, okay? Sailing a boat requires wind, but the pilot does not simply go where the wind takes the craft. He adjusts the sails and the rudder to properly orient the boat toward whatever his intended destination is. Now, emotions are like the wind. They animate our lives, and to some extent, they push us in certain directions. Our will, like a skilled sailor, must recognize when those feelings are blowing us off course and choose to apply the rudder of truth in order to keep moving toward a life of faith and obedience. In the book that I mentioned earlier, Dallas Willard uh, describes um, how feeling, mind, And will are interrelated listen to what he has to say to choose one must have some object or concept before the mind and some feeling for or against it there's no choice that does not involve both thought and feeling on the other hand what we feel and think is or can and should be to a very large degree a matter of choice in competent adult persons who will be very careful about what they allow their mind to dwell on or what they allow themselves to feel. Now, Willard is saying two really important things here. Okay, first, he's saying that you cannot ignore your feelings or neglect to cultivate proper beliefs if you want to have a will that is aligned with God's. Okay, in sailing terms, even the most skilled sailor is sunk, so to speak, without wind to propel and rudder to steer. In other words, the life of faith requires attention to thoughts and to our feelings. You cannot simply will yourself towards faithful obedience. You must cultivate right feelings and right thoughts. The second thing he's saying, though, is that you can, to a large extent, choose with the will what you think and, yes, believe it or not, even what you feel just like the skilled pilot trims the sails to direct the wind in a way that will allow the boat to go in the desired direction, you can control that force. Now, this is not immediate. I don't want to make it sound obvious or or easy, but directing the thoughts and the emotions, training those things, it requires training. So it doesn't happen immediately, but it is possible to train the way that we think and the way even that we feel in response to certain situations. So, So let's talk about this. Let's talk about how is it let's talk about how do we begin to take charge of our feelings like David does in this song. Okay so let me let me give you a question to ponder. Do you ever experience your mind in a loop? Like where you cannot stop thinking about whatever this thing is. That loop is usually driven by some emotion. Maybe it's worry, fear, some longing that you have. And that loop is a really good sign that your emotions, not the truth, is driving your boat at that moment. By habitually allowing feelings to direct your thought, your mind has developed certain ruts that it just automatically goes down in response to certain situations, which often lead in unfruitful and even sinful directions. Okay, so can you, can you remember those experiences? You can feel that. Okay, so for instance, occasionally I'll say or do something foolish that diminishes, at least in my estimation, that diminishes my reputation in someone else's eyes. Now, what I feel at that moment is regret. And some of it's probably warranted. I was foolish. But the problem is I can't let it go. I can't let that regret go. I replay the incident over and over in my mind. And each loop brings a new pang of guilt or of uh, in, my, in my gut and a new cringe to my face. And I say, why did I say that? And the result is I tend to avoid that person. Okay, so what do I do to get myself out of that loop? What would David suggest that I do to get myself out of that emotional loop that's driving my my thoughts in unproductive directions? Well, in my case, the truth that I need is A, Kevin, people are not judging your character based on one comment that you make, And you have plenty of experiences that you can look back on to remind yourself that that is not true. Secondly, and more importantly, the truth I need to hear is that um, even if they do, my worth is based on what God thinks of me and not what they think of me. And so this is, this is, a, real, this is a real struggle for me. And so I, I have a certain kind of line that I give myself, a truth that I rehearse that's kind of pulled from different parts of what I know to be true. And I say to myself something like this, Kevin, you are the beloved son of the high king. You don't need their approval. And I need to diligently, intentionally rehearse that truth to myself in that moment until I correct my my thinking. Uh, By allowing those truths to correct my initial emotional response, I am then free to move forward in love towards that person rather than avoiding them. And if I do move past my regret and toward them, what happens is I begin to form new habits of feeling and thought, new ruts, if you will, so that the next time I experience that regret, the loop, I'm less likely to hop onto the loop, and I'm more likely to allow my thoughts and feelings to go in productive, God-honoring, obedient directions. Let's take another example. Anxiety. Many of you feel anxious, and those loops of anxiety can be uh, crippling. And if that's your, your story, uh, I'm sorry. That's really hard. I know those experiences are very difficult. By way of example, uh, I imagine that there are parents in the room at this time of year that are experiencing anxiety about your child starting school in the fall. Maybe your child is going to school for the first time, it's a young child, or maybe it's an older child that's going out of your home off to college, and there's a particular worry that you have about that transition, and you can't stop thinking about your inability to control what is going to happen to them when they're away from you. How do you exit that loop? Psalm 31 invites you to rehearse the truth. Now, what is the truth that you need in that moment? Well, we could probably say a lot of things. Let me offer a couple examples. Number one, you would want to rehearse the truth that God has already seen your child through so many things. And I guarantee that you have plenty of recollections that you could retrieve and say, God has been faithful. He has protected them. A second truth might be that God is more, cares more about your child than you do and is infinitely more capable of protecting them from whatever it is that your mind is fearing than you are. He can be trusted. And perhaps the third truth is that it is by God's design that your children learn to be independent from you, and you can lean into that design. And when you rehearse those truths, perhaps you can arrive at the point where you say, into your hands, Lord, I commit my children. And each time that we rehearse the, that truth and release them into God's hands, we form new habits of feeling and thinking that allow us to respond to those moments of anxiety in far more productive ways the next time. These are habits that must be formed. That is the nature of growing in Christlikeness. So, I wonder what truth then? What truth do you need to have on hand to counter the anger that you're going to experience later this week? Or the loneliness Or lust or boredom or hopelessness or sadness? Are there memories that you can uh that you can have in mind that might reorient you? Have them ready to go? Recollections of God's faithfulness or his provision? Um are there particular scriptural truths, some verses perhaps that you need to memorize? Have the sword of the Spirit ready to fight that battle because you know it's coming on Wednesday this week. And you can be ready with that truth to rehearse it. If you're able to identify your emotional loop, but you're not quite sure what truth you need to apply to help you get out of that, that's okay. You're part of the way there. You just need to ask for a little help. And perhaps um, a conversation with your gospel community leader would be a great place to start. So friends, here is what God wants for us. Here's what God wants for you and for me. He wants us to be people who feel genuinely and deeply but who are not ultimately driven by our feelings he wants us to be a people like david who can walk forward in faith and trust even when our feelings are saying something very different and here's the amazing news he god has not just told you to be that way he's actually made it possible He's not just told you that you need to orient your feelings in a certain way. He has made that possible for you. If you still doubt that you have a future free from worry or shame or sadness or loneliness or some other feeling, then let me remind you what Paul said to the Corinthians. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is what? He's a new creation. The old is gone. Behold, the new has come. If you're a Christian, you have been born again. You've been born again. You are new. You're not shackled to the old you. You are new. And how is it that you are new? That verse says, in Christ. You are new because you are united with Christ. He is in you, and you are in him. You then can respond appropriately to your feelings because Jesus did. Did you notice that this Surely you noticed, some of you. Did you notice that this is not just the prayer of David? This is the prayer of Jesus himself, Psalm 31. Jesus sang Psalm 31 probably his whole life. He read these words, he knew them well, and this, the, the Psalms uh, were his prayer book. And this particular Psalm was so familiar to him that before he took his last breath, he quoted it. Into your hands I commit my spirit. Of all the Hebrew scriptures, why would he have gone to that line? I feel confident in saying it's because he had been praying this psalm all night long. All night long in the garden, he had been praying Psalm 31. In fact, Jesus exemplified in the gospel accounts of his time in the garden before being arrested, he exemplified the exact pattern that we've observed in David's prayer let's look at it he says he it, just think about it. he did not feel like going to the cross he pleaded if there's another way let me avoid this father he cried he uh he was distressed so distressed that he sweat blood and he honestly shared all of these emotions with the father he that it's always been so striking is it not about that account in the garden that he's not <laughs> hiding his fear he's honestly expressing all of that to the father But he did not stop at those emotions. He rehearsed the truth. Psalm 31, Psalm 22 were certainly among them. And many other truths. He rehearsed the truths. And then, not my will, but thine be done. He surrendered to the Father's will. Dear friends, if you have been united with Christ by faith, this has two enormous implications for you. Okay, number one, Consider all the times that you have failed to process your emotions in an appropriate way and it's led down sinful paths. Consider all the times you have not conformed them to what is true. You've not subjected those to the truth and you've not surrendered your will. Perhaps your anxiety is spun out of control. Shame has driven you into isolation or that momentary feeling of happiness has caused you to nurture that pet sin. If you are in Christ The father graciously forgives all of that sin. All of those sins are forgiven. He doesn't keep a record of those wrongs. And he looks down at you and sees not those failures, but he sees Christ with bloody sweat on his face saying, not my will, but thine be done. His righteousness is in you. And that's what the father sees. But the second implication is that because Christ took charge of his feelings in the garden, so can you. The gospel offers not merely forgiveness of past wrongs, but it offers us power to become like Jesus, okay? So Christ lives in you, and you are therefore being formed in his image. That's what it means to be a Christian. To be a Christian means to be formed into Christ. That is the normal progression. So if he is in you, then you are becoming more like Christ. You cooperate with that but it is the course of living the Christian life because he is in you. The spiritual power that created the universe, that life is in you. Okay, The the, the life of the one who faced the dread of crucifixion and all of the prospect of enduring the wrath of God for all of sin throughout all of history, the one who faced that dread and walked forward in faith and said, not my will, but yours be done. That life is in you. So worry Boredom, shame, fleeting happiness, sadness, those have no ultimate power over the one who is in Christ. Yes, yes, you were made to authentically feel the entire spectrum of human emotions. And that is a gift of God. To be human is to feel those things. But you were not ultimately meant to have only those in the end we have been called to walk in the truth and so let's pray and ask god to help us be people who walk in the truth our gracious father we marvel at your creativity we are indeed complex creatures human beings you've given us thoughts emotions, bodies, soul, spirit. And your desire for us is that each of those dimensions will be perfectly aligned with the chief end of man, which is to glorify you and to enjoy you forever. So have mercy on us, Father, because um, the world and the devil and our sinful flesh have distorted that design. Where our feelings have gotten the upper hand, bring truth to our minds. Help us escape those loops that we discussed, which make it so hard to hold on to you sometimes. And where we've given up or given in, fill us with the power of Jesus himself. And Lord, I pray that you would never let us succumb to the the lie that we are doing any of that work in isolation. We are the community of believers. And so would you help us to form one another in Christ-likeness as we live life together, lovingly uh, and faithfully.